0: This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 10, Episode 14, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, An American Tragedy, in conversation with Michael Dobbs. Richard Nixon was the 37th President of the United States. He was a complex man who rose from humble beginnings to become president of the United States. His foreign policy achievements, opening relations with China, detente with Russia, and an end to the Vietnam War, set the stage for the next 50 years of global politics. However, his domestic political struggles defined his presidency, most notably the Watergate scandal. Joining us today from his office in Bethesda, Maryland, is author Michael Dobbs, whose recent book, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, and American Tragedy, recounts the events of the first 100 days of 1973, which effectively sealed the fate of the Nixon presidency. Good morning, Michael, and welcome to the show.
1: Good morning, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. It'd be great to talk to you.
0: My pleasure. Well, Michael, let's dive right into it. What motivated you to write this book about Watergate?
1: Well, I've written several books, mainly about the Cold War. I was a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post. I witnessed the collapse of communism. So I was interested in turning points in history. There's one major turning point, of course, is the Watergate crisis, the forced resignation of Richard Nixon. I wanted to write not just about Nixon, but a larger theme, which is the fall of a president and i call my book king richard which of course has a shakespearean ring to it mm-hmm. i consider this an american tragedy as i say in the subtitle
0: now when you in in your book you talk about how he was raised his mother was a quaker his father converted to quakerism there were four boys Apparently, the mother named the boys after English kings, include Richard and Arthur, and so on and so forth. Tell us a little bit about the early days of Richard Nixon, because that largely informed who he became later in life.
1: That's right. He was born in a dirt poor to a dirt poor family from Yorba Linda, Southern California. Uh, his father was a failed farmer and then became pretty much a failed grocer. So. Nixon started with very little in his life at all. Two of his brothers died from tuberculosis when he was a young man. So that was really one of the themes that interested me in this book. Here's this man who rose to the most powerful position in the world, the President of the United States, from virtually nothing, then threw it all away. I and mean, that struck me as a very dramatic story, which I've tried to tell in this book.
0: You know, there's, there's such a contrast in his accomplishments. As I, as I mentioned at the outset, the opening of the door to China in 1971 with that very dramatic visit to China, detente with Russia, the strategic arms limitation talks, the negotiated end to the Vietnam War. Any one of those accomplishments would have stood, would have stood the, the test of time and history. But he actually achieved three of them in the space of his first term in office. Yet, how could, so on the one hand, great accomplishments in terms of of history and foreign policy, but how on earth could he have let this this little burglary bring down his whole presidency?
1: Well, as you say, he was a very accomplished president. He had a number of big achievements, particularly in the foreign policy area. He'd certainly studied the presidency. He'd studied American history. He was as equipped uh, by the time he became president to be president and to good, if not great president, as any other president in in American history. But then through flaws in his own character, flaws that were strengths on his way to the top, but became fatal flaws once he became president, uh, particularly his paranoia, his suspicion, his determination to get even with his enemies, i mean, all those failings which to some extent were hidden during his rise to the top helped to pro- propel his eventual fall. So there's an arc here that's perhaps somewhat poetic. The same qualities that helped Nixon rise to the top, his determination to succeed and his determination to fight all these battles also eventually brought him down in the end
0: let's come back to his paranoia and let's come back to the 1960 campaign when he was running neck and neck against senator kennedy john f kennedy in the 1960 election now it was it was rumored it was almost laughed about at the time that chicago had resurrected thousands of dead people to go out and vote for jack kennedy under mayor richard daly and that also lbj had manufactured a lot of fake votes in texas and by The slimmest of margins, both in Texas and Illinois, Kennedy won the 303, I think it was, electoral votes. 270 were necessary to win. And Nixon at that point, even though there was a very strong suspicion that the election had been stolen out from under him, he did not challenge it. So his paranoia in that particular—that ca- was one example of his paranoia, feeling that the election had been stolen from him. In that particular case, it seemed to have been well founded. Were there were there other examples of the of paranoia like that 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 were well founded, or was his paranoia just a a fatal flaw in his character?
1: Well, of course, he did have enemies. That was obvious. Anybody in politics has enemies, and Nixon had more than his share. The 1960 election was a very close election, much closer, by the way, than the last election that President Trump claimed that he'd won. I mean, in Nixon's case for disputing the election was certainly much stronger than Trump's was. He accepted the results. On the other hand, he was determined that this wouldn't happen to him again. And that certainly was part of the background to Watergate. And when it came to his re-election in 1972, he was determined that the Kennedy crowd or the Democrats weren't going to pull the same kind of tricks on him that they'd uh, pulled in his mind in 1960. And so he was constantly putting pressure on his subordinates for more and more political intelligence. And that really was the genesis of Watergate.
0: Well, let's come back to the event itself, the Watergate break-in. So many of our listeners today were not even born at the time that Watergate transpired. They know that it brought down his presidency. But what are the facts of the case? What actually happened? When did it happen? And who were the actors?
1: Well, it was born, I think, of Nixon's desire for political intelligence on the Democrats. And his first likely opponent was Senator Ed Muskie, who was a more formidable opponent than the man who eventually became the Democratic Party nominee, who I gather that you worked for yourself. I did indeed. uh, Yes. uh, George McGovern. Yes. Nixon thought he might lose the election. In fact, he coasted to victory. Uh, His people, based on sort of vague suggestions from him and orders that they shouldn't allow the Democrats to pull any dirty tricks on him. They spawned a program of political intelligence gathering, one of which one part of which was this effort to break in to the Democratic Party headquarters in the Watergate Hotel in Washington, plant bugs in the Watergate. And that's what happened in June of 1972, a five burglars hired by the Republican committee to re-elect the president broke into the Watergate in the middle of the night and were caught red-handed and they quickly rounded up both the burglars and the people who had sent them in there, one of whom was a man called Gordon Liddy, another was Howard Hunt, who had worked for Nixon in the White House and was working at the committee to re-elect the president. So there was obviously a direct link between the Nixon campaign and this burglary, but it took many months for the nature of that link to be revealed. And it was only after the election in 1972 and after Nixon's second inaugural that the whole plot began to unravel. And that's the period that I describe in my book.
0: Now, it was never alleged that Richard Nixon gave the order for these five burglars to enter Watergate. Did you did you come across any evidence to the contrary that Richard Nixon was actually much more closely involved in setting this setting this bugging operation in motion?
1: Well, I think Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, probably captured it best when he said that Nixon didn't wa- order the break into the Watergate, but he certainly caused it because he set the pattern for all these violations of the law, Republican dirty tricks, that uh, people like Gordon Liddy later implemented. Mm-hmm. It was rather like there's a famous story in English medieval history about King Henry II, who is fed up with his Archbishop of Canterbury and orders his, tells his knights, who will rid me of this turbulent, turbulent priest? Yes. And acting on those hints, the King's Knights go off and murder the Archbishop of Canterbury. And that was somewhat like Nixon and Watergate. that He didn't order Watergate, but he made it clear that he approved of any method to gather intelligence on the Democrats. And there were people in his entourage, particularly people like Chuck Colson, his, one of his closest advisors, and lower down the chain, people like Gordon Liddy, who were anticipating the president's wishes and were willing to go to any lengths to gather intelligence on the Democrats and make sure they didn't win the 1972 election.
0: Now, you mentioned two of the drivers, two of the the burglars, Gordon Liddy and H.L. Hunt, who who worked on the president's committee for re-election and had worked in the White House. Now they had also, both of those men had been involved with the Pentagon Papers and an attempt to break into the psychiatrist office of Daniel Ellsberg, who was the one who published the Pentagon Papers, which revealed the beginning of the Vietnam War. So so there there was a pattern, was there not, of these dirty tricks of using extra legal, extrajudicial Means dirty tricks, if you will, to to try to get embarrassing information on the Democrats, and most notably with Daniel Ellsberg and the uh, Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers,
1: yeah, this is where the story becomes a little complicated. But to simplify matters, you have to remember that the Nixon presidency, the big crisis of the Nixon presidency, which Nixon was handling, was the Vietnam War, yes. And he and Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor, were outraged by leaks to the press on the Vietnam War and particularly the history of the war, a secret history called the Pentagon Papers. And they were determined to find out who had done the leaking and to get even with them as well. And this spawned a unsuccessful break in, actually, to the officers of the in Hollywood of the psychiatrist of the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers Daniel Ellsberg Mm -hmm. but this was carried out by the same gang that later broke into the Watergate so there was a connection between these two break-ins and partly one of the reasons why Nixon decided that a cover-up was necessary of the Watergate was that had he allowed the facts to emerge from the Watergate it would have quickly been demonstrated that there are other illegal break-ins taking place during the Nixon presidency, which he he simply couldn't afford that to be known at a time when he himself was running for re-election.
0: Which then brings us on to the cover-up. But before we move on to the cover-up, because I, I would agree with you that while Nixon had created a an atmosphere at the White House in much the same way as King Henry did with with the murder of Thomas okay. with the murder of the archbishop of canterbury while he didn't give a specific order he created an atmosphere for that but before we move on to the cover up which is probably what what really brought down nixon let's just let's talk a little bit about the election because the 1972 election in which uh, i was working for the mcgovern campaign as you as you rightly mentioned nixon won that was a historic landslide where Nixon won 49 of the 50 states. The only state that voted for McGovern was Massachusetts. And of course, the District of Columbia, which is not a state, but a majority of people in the District of Columbia. So they were the only two political entities in the United States where a majority of people voted in favor of McGovern. It was a sweeping historic landslide victory. He won this victory, his second inaugural takes place January 20th, 1973. He's coming into office. He's facing another four years of government, of administration. And at that point, the five burglars had already been arraigned in front of a very controversial judge by the name of Maximum John Sirica. And of course, Maximum John relates to the fact that this judge, who in fact was a Republican, right? That that yeah. Max, Maximum John always made sure that whoever he had, whoever was in his courtroom to be judged, he gave the maximum, the maximum penalty to, the maximum sentence. So, as Nixon wins this big victory, at the same time you have bubbling along the way these five burglars who are in court who are beginning to make noises about, they need money, they need this. Tell us a little bit about the, these two, this historic victory, but at the same time, this this bubbling threat of the, the burglars being in court and so on and so forth.
1: Well, Nixon's people, particularly his legal counsel, John Dean, had managed to keep the lid on Watergate through the election. It was only when the trial started and the burglars got in front of Maxim and John Shariga, as you mentioned, and he began to put pressure on them that the cracks in the conspiracy began to widen to the point where it was impossible to cover it up any longer. And so that's the process that really interested me. When Nixon's aides begin turning on each other in efforts to save themselves, and eventually they turn on the president, and you see this very disciplined White House operation crack at the seams, and eventually, you know, they're all, uh, as Nixon puts it, pissing on each other, (laughs) eventually pissing on the president. (laughs) They eventually bring the president down.
0: Now, John Dean was the president's in-house counsel and a loyalist, at least initially, and and as you rightly said, from the from the time of the break in in June of 72 he had pretty much kept the lid on managing the i guess the the suits that were being brought and so on and so forth through the end of 1972 at what point did john dean turn because he was clearly in nixon's camp he was helping to keep things keep a lid on things if not actually cover cover up matters at what point did he did he see the light and begin to turn
1: i think he began to turn when he understood that he himself was in legal jeopardy and that he had a choice he could remain loyal to nixon but uh, he might end up going to prison and or he could blow the whistle bargain with the prosecutors keep out of prison i think it was a personal choice for him and it later became a moral choice but it began by being a personal choice, I think. And that all happened when one of the burglars decided to start cooperating with the prosecution. He began telling his story to the judge. His name was James McCord. He Mm -hmm. was one of the people who were caught inside the Watergate in June 1972, worked for the CIA. He was under great personal stress himself. And he was the first person to crack. And then later other people cracked, including Dean, and eventually it spread to the highest echelons of the White House. It began with John McCaw, James McCord deciding to tell the judge in the case that perjury had been committed at the trial. And that began this process of unraveling that eventually led to Nixon's forced resignation.
0: Now, payments were being made out of the White House, were they not? $350,000 of leftover campaign cash, which H.R. Haldeman had been responsible for. And then he gave that to one of his underlings who kept it in a safe deposit box at his bank and they would dip into the safe deposit box right and 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 actually hand out cash to some of these some of the burglars to pay for their living expenses and their their legal expenses
1: right they'd been paying the burglars essentially hush money to keep them quiet and to make sure that uh, their story didn't come out before the election mm-hmm. and then after the election they just considered that they had to continue this because one of the burglars, Howard Hunt, was effectively blackmailing the White House. Uh, Nixon had approved those payments. Uh, so that made him very vulnerable when the story began to unravel.
0: Coming back to the cover up, once Nixon approved payments, it was it was very clear that he was uh, that he was covering up what had happened. While he may not have given the order for the initial break-in, once he began approving payments to the burglars, at that point he was covering up. And as he, as he had said himself in one of his books, uh, Six Crises, that it's the, it's the cover-up that gets you, not, not as much the initial breaking of the law, right?
1: Right. Well, of course, he was a very smart politician, and he understood that perfectly well, because he'd been involved in a very celebrated case investigating a State Department spy called Alger Hiss. Yes. The Truman State Department at the time tried to cover this up, and Nixon keeps on lecturing his aides, saying, you know, it was the cover-up that brought that created all the problems for the Truman administration. But then he makes precisely the same mistakes himself. <laughs> in fact, orders the cover-up, participates in it, and it's this cover-up that eventually brings him down. Yeah.
0: Now, up to this point... No one, uh, the public was not aware that there was this very sophisticated recording system in the White House so that any time Nixon would speak on the telephone or not necessarily on the telephone, just have a conversation in his office, that that automatically triggered the recording system to switch on. And so all of his conversations during a 29-month period were were recorded, including these conversations with John Dean, with Haldeman, with Ehrlichman, and then, of course, Butterfield, one of the one of one of his aides, then revealed to the Senate. I remember watching it on TV at the Senate hearings that there was this this recording system. Tell us about the importance of that those recordings.
1: Well, they're important at a number of levels. One is just you know history. We're never going to get a more complete account of a Watergate over the White House in crisis and the president facing the greatest possible strains that you can imagine, an ex- existential threat to his own presidency than we have from the Nixon White House. And you know that is really what attracted me to this subject because we can, thanks to the tapes, we can follow Nixon around day to day in the White House even outside the White House, when he visits places like Camp David, which were also bugged, see see all the pressures that he was under, and then of course the tapes became key to his eventual removal from office because they supplied the evidence that he had been guilty of the cover-up or what, which should otherwise be called a obstruction of justice. He would committed a criminal felony in the eyes of the law. And it was the tapes that demonstrated that.
0: Now Michael, did you have access to the tapes? Were you actually able to listen to the tapes? Because certainly, as I as I was reading your book and I was re- rereading some of the passages last night, the dialogue between Nixon and Haldeman or Ehrlichman or John Dean is so realistic and <laughs> and of course, you you put it in quotes. I thought you you must have been you you must have been listening to the tapes yourself. To, well uh, of
1: course it's uh, realistic because it's based on you know complete reality it's yes. based on
0: what he conversations
1: said that not recorded not uh, reported dialogue as you get with most books about presidents in crisis but actual dialogue that anybody can go to the not just me but anybody else can go to the Nixon library and listen to these tapes you know it's an amazing window into A presidency in crisis how many
0: hours did you spend listening to these tapes because you made the point in your book that there were i guess thousands of hours of these tapes and to to actually to have to make sense of some of these conversations given background noise given ums and ahs etc was was really quite a lengthy and laborious process how did you find it
1: Well, it is certainly lengthy and laborious. I think there are about 8,500 hours of tapes altogether, and no single person could possibly hope to listen to them in their lifetime because many of them are very poor quality, and you need, actually, professional archivists estimate that you need to listen for 100 hours in order to get an hour of reliable transcripts. Mm. So, you know, I had to be selective in the tapes that I listened to Of course, I was listening mainly to a select, very clearly defined time period, the few months after Nixon's second inaugural. I was helped because, you know, there have been transcripts made of some of the tapes. Some of them are easier to listen to than others. Absolutely vital raw material for any historian dealing with the Nixon period. The problem is, you know, there's so, it's such a vast resource that if you're writing a biography of Nixon, you really are only able to scratch the surface with these tapes. Because I focused on a very specific period, I Mm -hmm. was able to use them in more depth than most historians have been able to.
0: Mm -hmm. That certainly comes across in the text. As I I reread those critical moments when he's trying to get Trying to persuade both Haldeman and Ehrlichman that they've got to hand in their resignations, and they both resist. They both they don't want to give their res- resignations, and there's pushback and there's almost a negotiation with them until, at the uh, finally, uh, he insists on the fact that they have to resign. But that wasn't that wasn't
1: a given. Yes, it was very painful, actually, not only for them but for him. I mean, he didn't fire people just like that. It was. Ex- Haldeman had been working, in particular, had been working with him for uh, 20 years or so, was been very close to him. And Nixon found it very painful to, he, he didn't just fire him by tweet. Of course, there weren't tweets in those days, but he didn't just find someone else to fire him. He went through a great crisis of his own in order to, before he could get rid of Haldeman. In fact, at one point, he tells Haldeman that he loves him like my brother, and I think that's a reference to the deaths of one of Nixon, death of one of Nixon's brothers from tuberculosis while he was a young man and really illustrates how much suffering Nixon went through, you know, just getting rid of these two men.
0: Mm-hmm. While I was never a Nixon fan, as, as I'm reading, as I was reading your book, there was part of me, I, I began to feel sympathetic Towards him, I began. To, I began to. I began to feel sorry for him that he was. He was in the circle. The circle was getting tighter. Of course, we know what the we know what the the outcome is going to be at at the end of the day, but all of these trusted aides who had stood by him for four or five years of his administration, one by one, they're they're dropping off. They're pointing fingers. They're 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 pointing fingers at each other. They're pointing fingers at the president. It's It becomes a very ugly, paranoid situation. And Nixon is, is there at the center of it. And you feel as though he's becoming more and more isolated in this. And he's he has given his own, given the fact that he was an introvert to begin with, he doesn't really have anyone to turn to, not even his family.
1: Right. You have to remember, I mean, Nixon wasn't just a politician. He's also a human being like the rest of us with human emotions, you know, that's what another thing that attracted me to this story, that he's a very complicated man. He has good side and bad side like most of us. Of course he's been, you know, caricatured a bit in history. You either love him or you hate him. And I wanted to tell the whole story, which I think is more nuanced, and you see a man of great talents, great flaws, a man you can, if not sympathize with at least empathize with. I mean, I tried to tell this story from his point of view, mm-hmm. how he experienced it, and if you tell it like that, it's hard not to empathize with him to some degree, even if you are still critical of him in many respects.
0: As I said, I was, I was shocked that I found myself empathizing with him when, for all of my childhood, I... Never empathized with the man, and into my young adulthood, and the first election I could vote in, I didn't vote for him. So I, I found myself. So I came at your book with a very clear sense of Nixon as an opponent. Nixon as someone who uh, was was not particular, essentially a flawed man, flawed man and a flawed president. But as I read these, as I read that dialogue. I began to empathize with him. So I think you were very I think you were very effective in getting inside the man and getting inside his the emotions of what he was experiencing at the time. And that's one of the few I don't know that I've read another account of Watergate which really tells the story from from his perspective in a in a very credible manner the way you've done in this case.
1: Well, uh, that's very kind of you to say so. I mean, I do think that uh, distinguishes my book from other books that have been written about Nixon and Watergate. Yes, any of the classic Watergate books have been told from the outside. I mean, if you think of the the most well known of them all, all the President's men, yes. by my former colleagues at the Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, and that was essentially a story of two journalists who pursued the Watergate investigation into the White House. I mean, now, because of all the tapes, and because of all the other sources we have, it's possible to tell this story not from the outside, but from the inside, actually as if you're in the room, because we are in the room, Mm -hmm. thanks to these tapes. Mm -hmm. Now, Michael, you describe
0: yourself as a presidential crisis historian, not a presidential historian, but a presidential crisis historian. And of course, this crisis of Richard Nixon is one of the greatest crises to befall a presidency tell us about some of your other six books you've written seven books in total but tell us about some of your other six books where you've dealt with presidential crisis
1: well that description is partly tongue-in-cheek because there are all these (laughs) uh, historians who make a career out of calling themselves presidential historians which is a little bogus in my mind but so I thought I would launch a new genre (laughs) of presidential crisis historian. It's true that in my books, I have focused on presidents and crises. I mean, this is one example. Uh, Another is I wrote a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis called One Minute to Midnight Mm -hmm. that looks at, you know, the gravest possible crisis that you can imagine, the threat of a nuclear war, how John F. Kennedy handled that. Then another book, Six Months in 1945, was about the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, and particularly looked at the decisions taken by FDR and Truman. And I wrote another book about refugee crisis prior to the Second World War, the Jewish refugee crisis that ultimately, you know, was the precursor to the Holocaust. That book is called The Unwanted. So a lot of these books I've ended up looking at I've been interested in presidents and how they respond to crises, including, you know, the gravest possible crises you can imagine. Let's just come,
0: let's come back to the King Richard book, the Richard Nixon book. Is there, as you were writing the book, obviously you were listening to the tapes? Did you have an opportunity to talk with any of the the players? who were part of this intrigue of course richard nixon is uh, long since dead many of the many of the players are no longer with us but there are still a few around
1: yeah but it's, i mean it's 50 years now since uh watergate or will be next year so of course many of them have passed on i did i mean not particularly for this book did talk to chuck colson when i was a reporter at the washington post and that mm-hmm. was very helpful out in um california i visited the nixon library i met with frank gannon who was a former white house aide to nixon in fact helped him later with several of his books frank gannon was extremely helpful to me in giving me a window into events in the white house but the main source was not interviews it was the actual primary sources Mm -hmm. from the time which are so rich that you don't have to talk to people 50 years later to knit together a a picture of what happened. In fact, I think people's later memories uh, can often be erroneous. The contemporaneous sources are much more, are much richer and much more reliable than uh, interviews with participants many years after the fact.
0: In a sense, no author has written a book like this before, and certainly will never write one like this again, because no president is going to permit a recording system to be present in the White House to record every single thought and idea. So in, in that sense, your book is unique. It's certainly unique. It's a unique view of Nixon and the turmoil that was going on in the White House. But it's also a unique look at decision making on the part of a president. And as I said, no president is ever going to permit that to happen again because they wouldn't allow these these recordings to take place.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is a unique window into You know, not just Nixon's own crisis, but into the way real life takes place in any White House. I mean, it's not all high-minded debates about policy. There's a lot of individual backbiting and loving moments with your family and arguments, not about politics, but just about daily life. It's a bit like, you know, the West Wing or Veep. (laughs) Um, There's certainly Veep moments in in my story.
0: Well, well, Michael, in the remaining few minutes left in the podcast, are there, are there any closing thoughts that you have for our listeners? And in particular, now that you've completed King Richard, what is your next book?
1: Well, I still haven't thought about that. I do think that, as you were kind enough to say, you know, this is unique material. And I mean, certainly, you know, me as the author and the researcher, it was a real privilege get inside the White House, to get inside the room, at times I felt, you know, like a fly on the wall, and I really wanted to give listeners the sense of being a fly on the wall to all these conversations that normally most of us wouldn't get to hear, and then perhaps I thought, well, instead of a fly on the wall, a better analogy might be a bug in the desk, because... (laughs) these were actual bugs uh, yes. in the desk that enable us to listen to all these conversations. <laughs> very so, good. Um if you want to you know have a real-time sense of what life is like in the White House from the perspective of a bug in the a president's desk in the Oval Office, that's what I've tried to give you in this book. Well, I
0: I think you've done that very very well. I ne- I've never read a biography or a story a memoir of a president which reads so authentically and of course you're actually you're transcribing some of uh, of his words and his conversations with his with his aides. so why wouldn't it come across but but certainly he as a as an individual jumps off the pages of the book as you recount it so michael i want to thank you for being our guest and for shedding light on this key event, Watergate in American history and also for for explaining the importance of Watergate to a generation who came after Watergate. For those of us who were alive at the time, we'll never forget it, but but I think I think your book has actually made Watergate a an event which even people who are less than 50 years old would be able to sit down to read and really understand why this event caused the first American president in history to resign. So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation.
0: Well, thank you, Michael. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit my website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com, and subscribe to the podcast. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, All future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also peruse my book, read my blog, send me an email, or leave me a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.